step by step, we move into understanding the loss at a much deeper level, at a soul level, and how that is meant to move them, how you are meant to move through the portal of pain into the portal of purpose. That's where we end up. Welcome to the Personal Development Without the Fluff podcast brought to you by Satori Prime. Look, if you believe that there's got to be more to life or you find yourself zagging when others are zigging, this podcast is most likely for you. We're not here to fix you because in our opinion, you're already perfect. We are here to help you remember who you truly are. That light inside of you that you thought you lost forever. I think you know the one I'm talking about, right? That one. We're brash and blunt and give it to you straight. You'll most likely love us and hate us at the same time. And for us, that's perfect. Because what we are here to do is open your heart and expand your mind so you can live your ultimate life. And if you're wanting more support at any time or just want to interact with Guy and I, find our personal development without the fluff group on Facebook and come hang out with us and other like-minded, amazing human beings. So if you're done with fantasizing about your life and you're ready to go start living it, welcome to our show. Now let's get started. All right. Welcome to the show. Now, before we jump in, I want to make a big announcement. So obviously we have the holidays and Thanksgiving and Christmas and Hanukkah and Kwanzaa and all that stuff happening. And Guy and I have created something, a way to give back to you, our loyal listeners. So you may have heard that we started something called The Collective. What you may have not heard is that right now, not only can you get in for a 14-day free trial to experiment it and see if it works for you, we've also lowered the price from $99 a month to just 9 That's right. You didn't hear this wrong. From $99 to nine. And if you do it now, you can get grandfathered in at that $9 price point today. Again, all you have to do is go to satoriprime.com forward slash collective, satoriprime.com forward slash collective, and you can grandfather yourself in to the collective for just $9. Our way to give back during this holiday season. So if you're out there wanting to make significant changes in your life, wanting to get more peace, more fulfillment, more love in every area of your life, make sure you go to satoriprime.com forward slash collective right now. I do not know how long we're going to keep this up. So now would be the time to act. All right. So today's review comes to us from the official SAV headlined encouraging and honest. So the official SAV, if you're listening please email me at elon at satoriprime.com and I will send you your personalized gift. So the official Sav writes, love to listen, entertaining and informative. They don't fluff around, by the way, I love that. They tell you what's helpful if you're making your way down the new path, good tools and exercises to use at home and for practice. Each life changed, changes the world. Amen to that. The official Sav Email me, elon at satoriprime.com, and I will send you your personalized gift. And if you are wanting your own personalized gift, again, just head to iTunes, leave us an honest review, and when I read it, you will get yours. All right, let's dive right in. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Have It All podcast. Elon here, and we're going to talk about a subject today that I'm very, very excited 
to learn more about personally. Um, it's something that I think every human being in our life experience, this is one of those things that happens to all of us. And whether it's losing someone or something that we love, there's a process that we go through called grief. And so today we brought on a guest who this is her expertise, very niche down. So uh, first of all, Uma Garish, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me, Ilan. It's, it's a pleasure. I'm really, really excited to dive deep into this because I know the kind of tr emotional trauma that not going through a, a proper grieving process can have on someone because I work with people who decades after having had that experience are still unpacking um, what, what they refuse to process at that time. So before we jump into all that, I'd love for you to just give a little bit of introduction of who you are and how you came to be where you are today. Okay, great. So I was born and raised in India where I lived with my family until 2008. And in the spring of 08, we moved to the States. Um, so back in India, I was teaching and training for the British Council, and I was also a freelance writer, writing articles and short stories and, and all that good stuff. Mm. But when we moved here, I realized that I needed to be doing something a little different because most of my training in India was about um, business English and that wouldn't work here. <laughs> so um, I, I was thinking of what to do and you know where, where life was going to lead me when almost within 10 days of our moving here, my mother in India was diagnosed with stage four cancer. Mm. So that really um, threw me for a loop Unfortunately, she died eight months after her diagnosis, and she was only 68 years old. So I was in a new country. I had no friends. Um, I didn't know how to drive. Um, it was the dead of winter, January. Talk about navigating grief through a new culture, a landscape, and nobody to walk with you. So that was sort of the perfect storm that erupted in my life at that time, which moved me down this, down this road and this journey. Mm. It's amazing. I, I keep reminding, when people say stuff like this to me, I'm always reminded of that line. I don't know if uh, you've seen it. There's that documentary on Tony Robbins, I'm Not Your Guru. Yes, I have. Yeah. And he, and he says this great line he's in there. He was talking to someone and he said something, you know, I didn't get his mom, I guess, put his head through the wall when he was a teenager and she was very physically and emotionally abusive. And he said, I didn't get the mom that I wanted, but I sure as hell got the mom that I needed. Yeah. And I find it fascinating how we have these human experiences, which are so traumatic and so painful at the time. And yet people like you can take that and learn from it and grow from it and be able to share something with others. Uh, we've had people who have fought addiction on this podcast and people who have been abused and how they turn that darkness into light and then able to share that in the world. So I acknowledge you for seeing the messages written on the wall and, and, and going down that path. So thank you for that. Okay, so let's, let's dive in because obviously people come to you when they've realized that the process of grieving has really, I don't know if emotionally stunted them is the right way to say it, but uh, I'm going to use that for now. Um, so I'd love to first talk about 
you know, the process that you take people through when they've raised their hand and go, hey, I need help. So I guess my first question is, who are the kind of people, like, why do people seek you out? Hmm. So primarily, I work with women, young and in their midlife. But what I like to say is they are mostly spiritually oriented women, which means when they are in this place where they've lost a job or lost a loved one or lost their dream life for some reason, they come to me knowing that they're meant to grow through this, but they're in so much pain that they don't know the first step to take through this Mm -hmm. process. So I would say that a big piece of what I do initially is just let them vent. People have a great need to tell their story of loss. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we live, live in a culture where people aren't always receptive and open to these stories. We live in a very perky culture. We, uh, we live in a culture of smiley faces. <laughs> even um, if they're fake. <laughs> even if they're fake. So it's hard for people who are going through a traumatic loss to find a good listener. So when they come to me, they really settle down. You know, what we do first is really deactivate the amygdala, the fight or flight mm-hmm. response by saying, tell me your story. What's going on? Where do you feel stuck? And what are the biggest challenges? So that's the first piece of the work I do. Because once they calm down, they tell their story, they're feeling a little more in control. Okay, this is where I need help. And Mm -hmm. this is is how I need to move through this experience. So every person's grief is very individual. So although I do have a custom sort of a, a, a package to lead them through a process, I customize it to my person's individual needs. Yeah. Um, And a lot of it has to do with teaching them how to be with their feelings. That is a very, very, very big part of my work because we don't want to sit with our unpleasant feelings. Nobody likes unhappiness, pain, sadness, rage. These are, you know, feelings we want to run away from or hide from. So a big piece of the work I do is helping people befriend their feelings. Yeah, so good. There's two things in there that are just so brilliant. One, about people venting their story. You know, it's really interesting. I think when people share that story, it makes people so uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, because we've all experienced grief in one way, shape, or form. And hearing someone else trying to be there for them, it triggers so much stuff for us. And if that stuff for that other person hasn't been fully healed, then it just creates all of that pain again, which is exactly what you alluded to right there. Like we don't want to feel yeah. that ever again. And so we avoid it like the plague, which makes the person who's really wanting to vent almost feel like they're in this alone, even though we know that they're not. And I love that you, uh, that you brought that out about the feeling piece. So once they vent and they, they, start to realize, I think sometimes when, when someone really listens in an open container and someone really gets to vent, like a lot of stuff comes up. And I think at that point they probably realize like, wow, this goes a lot deeper than what I thought was there before. So after someone's come to that realization, um, what's kind of that second stage that they can start looking at? 
So the next place I take them to is learning how to manage their emotions because even though they're dealing with a loss, they have to go to work, they have to deal with mm. kids at home, sometimes grandchildren, friends, family members. They have obligations. Life doesn't stop because you're grieving. Yeah. So teaching them how to manage these emotions using breath work, using journaling, um, using letter writing. So I teach them these these easy processes which they can then use to to manage their grief. Sometimes it's even going into the conference room in their office and walking, you know, like one round around the conference table mindfully, just being present. It takes two minutes to do that, but just being present to the moment really helps alleviate their symptoms or taking a break, going in, going into their car and sitting down and having a good cry, getting it out of their system and then coming back to deal with what they have to. So looking for easy, simple tips and tricks to help them manage their emotions, that's the next step. Do you find that because of you know life not stopping and your kids relying on you and your, your spouse relying on you and work relying on you, do you find that people circumvent the process because you know they have to put on a brave face or they have to be strong for others and 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 that kind of stunts their ability to actually go through whatever it is that they need to go through absolutely especially when there are kids in the home many of my clients will say to me I don't want to cry. I don't want to look like a mess mm-hmm. in front of my son or daughter. And mm-hmm. it's also teaching them that grief is a family experience. It changes the family dynamic. And so self-care has to be a really big part of this. Grieving is a form of self-care. Yeah. And so teaching them that they have to ask for their needs to be met. You know, you are no longer the person you used to be before the loss happened. You have been changed. I like to think of it as, you know, a shattered mosaic, and then you're gathering all the pieces back together and fashioning something completely new out of this broken mess. So in the process, that takes time. So you have to ask for help. You have to ask for your needs to be met. If there are certain things that you are not able to show up for, then you should be willing to to say no to obligations and people. Um, sometimes even people who can't be with you in that experience, because not everyone can sit with us in that fire of loss. It takes a lot of courage and um, strength for someone to be able to sit with you and say, it's okay, just feel okay to cry or talk about it. You know, I'm here to listen. There aren't too many people who can inhabit that space. Absolutely. You, uh, you reminded me of <clears throat> when my uh, grandfather died. I was actually flying to Israel to be with him mm-hmm. and he passed away at the hospital while I was in the air. So by the time we landed, he was, he had already passed away. And I remember stepping into his house, him and my grandma's house. And the second I stepped in and had this realization, like, wow, he's never going to be in this house here with me ever again. I lost it. Um, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't get myself to stop crying. It was just uncontrollable. And my mom came up to me and, and my grandma's there. And obviously she's, you know, shattered. Um, and my mom came up to me. She's like, look, you got to pull yourself together for, for grandma. And I remember going to the bathroom 45 minutes, an hour. I don't even remember how long. Um, and I couldn't, 
I just, I could not get myself to walk out of that bathroom and not have, you know, the excruciating pain and that thought like he's never going to be there. But I remember how, when my mom said that to me, there's this feeling of like, I can't feel the way I want to feel right now. It was almost like that, that piece. And this is before I knew a lot of the stuff that, that I know today. Um, so yeah, it was, it was very much, I was a child, you know, it was, I mean, not a child, I was in my twenties. Uh, but it was very much alive for me even back then. Mm. Um, and then as I learned a lot more of this about the stuff and grieving and the emotional traumas and how we block it and how it kind of stays in our system, no matter what, um, I actually ended up going through like a whole other grieving process, uh, with him as well. But, um, it really pointed to that. And I, and I don't think people do it with mean or foul intentions. I think it's no. just kind of like a societal norm, right? We've never been taught how to deal with loss. You know, mm-hmm. um, one of my clients, when she came to me, she told this interesting story of how she had this little um, little fish in, in a fishbowl at home when she was five years old. One morning she wakes up and the fish is lying dead in the fishbowl. And she runs up to her mommy and says, mommy, the, I, something happened to the fish. And the mommy runs up to the fishbowl and, and finds the, the dead fish. And she says oh, the fish died. And the girl is shattered because to her, the, the dead fish is the same as a, a cat or a dog. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a big deal. But mommy just scoops the fish out of the fish bowl, wraps it up in a newspaper sheet and says, oh, it was just a fish. It's okay. Get over it. And she says, I brought that attitude to everything else in life. When something fell apart, you know, my, my go-to response was, it's just a whatever, get over mm. it. So, you know, the early messages we receive about um, how to deal with these things, they shape our experiences well into adulthood. And many of us didn't, didn't grow up really receiving messages about, you know, oh, I'm so, honey, I'm so sorry you're sad about this. Can we talk? What's going on? Can you tell me what's going on? Yeah. That's what we wanted to hear, but we didn't because our parents didn't know how to do emotion. So they just brought that legacy to bear on us. And uh, so it becomes the thing that we pass on to our kids. And if we don't learn how to do it better, the same patterns get repeated. Yeah, that mom definitely had this, her mom or dad or someone in her family did literally the exact same thing to her, which exactly. you know raised her a certain way. Um, it's funny that, that as a parent now, uh, I have a seven and change year old and a five and a half year old. Um, you find yourself in autopilot doing certain things and training your kids in certain ways that your parents raised you without ever asking the question, is this necessarily the best way or not even is the best way? Is this necessarily the way that I choose Mm-hmm. to raise my children. And I find that a lot of the times I go into autopilot mode in these moments and then I come out of it and I'm going like, that's not how I would have chosen to, to you know, parent in that moment or have that interaction. And then just constantly questioning, yeah, how can we do this better? How can we provide better and, and all that stuff. So because that's your reflex, you know, it, it, it's your familiar go-to uh, response. This is why we have to be mindful and intentional about how we respond to life in any given circumstance. Hi there, my friend. I just want to take a minute in case you skip the intro to these shows for some reason 
and let you know that for a very, and I mean truly very limited time, as in this could be gone by next week, Guy and I are offering entrance into our collective for instead of $99 a month for just nine. That's right. You can get yourself grandfathered in for just $9 a month for life now, as long as you head to satoriprime.com forward slash collective. And if you're thinking, I don't know, is this for me? Then I got two things to say about that. First, if you even like this podcast a little bit, you'll absolutely love the collective. We share things in there that we share with our personal clients who pay us tens of thousands of dollars and you can get them for nine bucks. And the second thing is we're actually offering you a 14-day free trial so you can just come and check it out for yourself for free. You have nothing to lose. So again, go to satoriprime.com forward slash collective right now and make sure you lock this thing in before we realize that we've gone crazy and change our minds. <laughs> we look forward to seeing you in our collective. Now back to the show. The aspect of loss feels like, um, you know, our hearts open, we love, and then when we lose someone that we truly, truly care and love, you know, unconditionally and like, like openly, um, it almost feels like our heart shuts down in a particular way. It's like boxed in somehow. And for some people that box is, you know, an armored fortress. Uh, for other people, it could be, you know, a house or a couple of wooden sticks. I mean, it really depends kind of how the trauma was. Um, do you find that in taking someone through this process where they get to relive this, uh, does that actually help to open their heart back up as they go through this process? Yes, uh, that's a really good question. And I think it's important to address, and we do address that in, in the work I do, because my work weaves in elements of spirituality. And bringing a spiritual response to loss is about keeping your heart open. Because loss is, is part of life. I mean, look at nature. Nature lives by the law of impermanence. Hmm. Everything that's living and breathing in this universe will die. Yep. And as human beings with you know hearts and lungs, we are, we are subject to the same laws of impermanence. So the whole idea is to understand loss in a way that is not frightening, that we don't have to run away from. So when we bring in a spiritual understanding to, okay, why are we here? What am I meant to do with this life? And what happens when I die? What is this thing called death? Um, what is the soul? When we really have those deep conversations, it allows my client to open their hearts. It does, mm -hmm. because you can't do soul level work with a closed heart. It, it yes. doesn't work that way. So it is about, but you have to start at step one. You have to start with the pain and validating their sense of loss and where they are, speaking about the story of loss, how it has changed them, what their fears are around the loss. And then step by step, we move into understanding the loss at a much deeper level, at a soul level, and how that is meant to move them, how you are meant to move through the portal of pain into the portal of purpose. That's where we end up. Beautiful. I, just, to, just to bring that impermanence word to, to the pain aspect of it, I think a lot of the times when we're in so much pain and so much grief, uh, we have this unrealistic notion like this is the way life is going to be forever. 
Mm-hmm. I will feel this pain. I will feel this despair. I will feel this sorrow forever. And you know, to, to what you were saying about impermanence, like even that, yep. you, you don't feel that. Just like you don't feel joy or love or everything forever, you also don't feel pain and sorrow and, and despair forever as well. So yeah. it's always a really great reminder. Yeah, it's like everything is impermanent, right? So I like to say that look at the sky. The clouds are constantly changing shapes and formations. The color of the sky is not the same from one hour to the next. Mm -hmm. So our hearts need to be as wide open as the sky, but what's happening inside our heart is constantly shifting and changing. And that is the impermanence we need to be mindful of. So nothing is here to stay forever. It will stay with you for as long as you need to learn from it. And then once you've got the lesson, it moves on. Yeah. So, so let's go back to the, to the stages here. So we let them vent, we let them share their stories so they can feel that. Then we, we go into managing their emotions. What was step three in that process? Step three is sometimes, and I think you alluded to this earlier, where you said a lot of stuff comes up when they start speaking about the story of loss. And oftentimes I will make a connection, which not a lot of people do, I find, which is that there is a grief pileup. And so when I begin to investigate why this grief pileup has happened, I find a lot of unaddressed grief issues. Mm -hmm. So something happened in the person's 20s, which wasn't looked at, which was pushed away. Something happened in their 30s, something happened in their 40s. And now at 52, you have this loss, which triggers all the other losses you haven't dealt with. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it can go as far back as two generations. So this is the piece of work that I'm really interested in exploring more with my client, which is ancestral healing. Because something that hasn't been healed down the generations can come back and traumatize somebody who's three generations removed, but the pain is still as real and present. So then we dive into the, the ancestral trauma healing, the stories in the family, um, unhealed mother wound. That That's almost the starting point of that piece of work. So I go into all of that, finding out what went on in the family. Do you have access to stories from your grandparents or maybe your great-grandparents? Is there an aunt who can tell you, you know, something about what was not talked about in the family? You know, all families have stories of shame that are hidden away in the family vault. (laughs) (laughs) We do not discuss this. We don't discuss it, but that's where the gold is. Because trauma that is unhealed will keep surfacing from one generation to the next until someone raises a hand and says, enough is enough. Let's heal this. Yeah. It's, uh, it's something we call stacking where it's, you know, something happens and then emotionally all this other trigger points are now mm-hmm. happening. Um, there's just, I'm of a belief that everything happens in our life for us instead of to us. I think there's like two different schools. People are just, you know, the victim mentality, like, why does this keep happening to me? Then there's the other school of thought, which is like, how, how is this here to help me grow, become a better human being, et cetera. And so it all kind of becomes this massive, if you, if you're on the ladder, this whole massive opportunity to see feedback and realize like, Oh wow, that still creates a lot of trigger in my system, where is that coming from? And then it always 
points. It's like a highlighter to that aspect of you that maybe you haven't looked at or have refused to look at, which is, is mostly what happens. And I think when we're so raw and open, especially from loss, um, if we're open to viewing it that way, it really is just a massive opportunity to see mm -hmm. so many of, like you said, not only our programs, our ancestral programs. Yeah. Um, one that, that I actually have recently, and I think this is kind of a, I've been told a very Russian, um, so I'm Russian Jewish ancestor line. So one of the things is um, suffering is something that that's that's ha obviously happened a lot in our lineage and what's been interesting is noticing how drama is not the right word it's like um certain circumstances that create bonding but it creates bonding through having gone through something not necessarily traumatic but trying yeah, and how we keep creating these events of of having to survive something I, in I order think to the feel the phrase connection. you're looking for is unconscious family loyalties. Say okay, unconscious. Okay, so say more about that. So we are all attached to our families, whether you know they are grandparents, grandparents, great grandparents, good, bad, or ugly. This is the family we know. We are born into. <laughs> And, you know, on a soul level, we have made a contract yes. to come through these parents because they are the perfect parents. Like you talked about Tony Robbins. She was the perfect mother he needed to help him get to where he is today. And so when a parent suffers, we have an unconscious loyalty. And, and the operative word here is unconscious because we are not conscious that we are doing, repeating these patterns but because of the sense of loyalty to a family member or a parent. I'll give you an example. A client of mine was very attached to her father because her mother was a very violent person. Mm. And, um, you know, the kids suffered a lot at her hands. She treated dad very badly. And so the girl felt very close to father because she felt bad for her father's suffering. And her father was a very loyal husband mm. and, and dad and did the best he could for his family. But then she ended up being loyal unconsciously to her dad and ended up marrying someone very close to just like, him. just like him and repeated her family circumstance and didn't even realize it. Many years later in her 50s, she, she works with me. And then I tell her, can you see what you've recreated? Because you were so loyal to your dad and we need mm. to let that go. So we remain attached to these family loyalties and we suffer just like a parent suffered. Sometimes, let's say father had a business that never made any money because of the unconscious loyalty, we will make business decisions or if, if, we, are, you know, if, if we are going to a job, we'll constantly lose a job or not make enough money, uh, not be rewarded by abundance as a way to stay loyal to the family theme. And that's how these themes surface. Yeah. So that's, that's the opportunities that we have to heal those ancestral lines, correct? Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay. So that's, that's three. Um, are there other steps in this process? 
Um, sometimes I'll customize a couple of steps depending on what a person needs. Um, there may be um, definitely forgiveness is a big step. Yes. Forgiveness and, uh, you know, releasing what you've been holding on to for years against a sibling, a parent from whom you didn't receive what you thought you should. It's very important to cut those cords. Um, and so I do some shamanic practices around that to help them come to that place of forgiveness, yes. help them understand why they created those circumstances. It's actually serving them, but because of the anger and this feeling that, you know, I'm a victim, I should have had better, that keeps them stuck where they are. Mm -hmm. But when they're able to reframe the experience and see, oh my goodness, really, if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have made certain choices which brought me to where I am today. Then they're able to get the reframe and say, oh my goodness, yeah. So that what happened really happened for me. Yeah. And when they get that piece, they're more willing to move into forgiveness because without forgiveness, you really cannot move forward. Yeah. It will hold you back. It's like chains around your ankles. Yeah. There's also, for, so there's forgiveness of, self, of others. And I think ultimately at the end, there's also of forgiveness self. of self, which I've seen so many people hold on to that they were somehow responsible yeah. for something and or um, the relationship wasn't where they would have liked it to be at yeah. the end. And I find that to be actually people's biggest pain points is wishing that they were some other way with that person. Um, and one of the things that I'm a big, like huge, huge believer in is having all your relationships now in the present moment be fully healed in the sense of you've said everything that you wanted to say so that, you know, in case, look, we don't know how long people are going to be here. Yeah. Uh, but the worst thing is to try to ask for forgiveness when the person is gone. And, you know, there's all these exercises with doing letters and things like that. And it is, it, to me, it's always heartbreaking when someone has to do it with a letter of someone that passed yeah. away instead of having the awareness enough to do it in the moment when that person's alive. Um, do you, do you find that to be accurate with, uh, with the forgiveness of self as well? Absolutely. I think guilt is a very big uh, piece of uh, the work we do because most of my clients carry guilt. Mm -hmm. I should have got another medical opinion. Um, I wish I had said, I love you. I wasn't in the room when they died. Mm -hmm. um, I wish I treated my mother better. I hadn't had those you know, difficult, challenging conversations. I should have called more often. There's all kinds of reasons why they feel guilty. Um, it, that's why I'm teaching a six-week teleclass that's soon coming up, November 8. Um, but yes, to your point, absolutely, it is heartbreaking that they weren't able to complete something and they have to do it now when the person is no longer here. But that being said, I tell them, don't beat yourself up because yeah. you did what you did knowing what you knew then. With what you know today, how can you use this experience of guilt to help someone else who's in your shoes? So you can transform this pain into something meaningful in, in yes. somebody else's life. So nothing, no experience is ever, ever wasted. Mm. That's what I like to say. You can always learn something from your mistakes and failures and then use that as a teaching tool to help somebody else who's making the same mistake or is about to fail at something. Yeah. Do you find that having guilt, for example, actually 
allows people to bypass dealing with the actual hurt and pain of the loss? Yeah, because guilt is a way of beating yourself up, right? It's, yeah. it's self-flagellation. It's self-punishment. I couldn't do this. I didn't do this. I chose not to do this. I can't change the circumstances because my mother died or my brother isn't here anymore. So let me beat myself up. Let me punish myself because they can't punish me anymore. Yeah. That's what happens. And you yeah. have to learn to understand where guilt is useful and where guilt is not so useful and let it go. Yeah, I find that to be true, not not only with loss, with with many, many things, you know, the I wish I could have done this differently, the shoulda, coulda, woulda, and then you go into yeah. guilt. But inside of that is at the core is, you know, the little boy or the little girl is afraid that they messed up or afraid that and, and that's ultimately the part that they don't want to necessarily look at. So it's much easier to just beat yourself up instead of actually diving deep into the that core wound, quote unquote, that we don't want to feel. Yeah. In fact, I will say this, that uh, I look at my work as helping my clients really, um, how shall I put this, really embrace their human divine selves. Mm. I believe that we all have a spark of the divine within us. And with so much spirituality being so popular today, people go very quickly to positive thinking. How can I get over this? I need to write a gratitude journal every day and I need to do these rituals. And I say, can you just sit here and cry? Can you just be okay with your tears? Can you be okay with your humanness? Amen. That's my job. I find more and more because people are jumping too quickly to spiritual tools to deal with pain. And I keep pulling them back and saying, be human. It's okay. You will make mistakes. You are imperfect. We are not meant to be perfect. We're just meant to be whole. And when we are whole, we can, we can come to our lives bringing that wholesome self, but also embrace the rest of humanity that is imperfect and flawed. Mm. So good. That is one of the core things that I've in, in, in practice to, to share with my children. Uh, we, we call it perfectly imperfect. <laughs> um, I love that. Yeah, it's just, and especially for kids, here's what I've noticed, that kids look at adults mm-hmm. as adults having life figured out. Like, like And I kind of remember this at least from the time I was about seven or eight, I remember having these thoughts of, wow, you know, like someday I'm going to be like that and I'll have life figured out. And, you know, I'm relatively young. I'm 37 years old and I still don't have anything figured out. (laughs) Like like for me, it's, it's this constant. So even sharing that with my children, I remember when they were much, much younger, I would just, if I didn't handle something, you know, the way I, I wanted to handle something, I could step away and come back and I started this practice of coming back to them and saying, you know, when we had that experience, like I didn't really like the way I handled that with you and I'm sorry. And I'm sorry if, if you know, is there anything that you uh, want to say about that experience? And I remember like the first few times that I apologized for something as in like, you know, I didn't handle it the right way. Their faces were just, it was like shock. Like, wait, you apologize? Like you did some, like you messed something? It was just mind blowing to them, and then just having them understand that 
we're all here on this journey of learning, growing, learning, growing, learning, growing. Um, I mean, I wish I knew that as a kid. So it's like one of those things I'm, yeah. I'm really, really excited that that my kids get to, to see. Uh, it makes such a huge difference. It just takes so much of the pressure off. Doesn't it also make you feel so full of love for them that they trust you so completely? Mm-hmm. Anything that you do is right. Mm-hmm. They don't look at you as a mistake or a failure because dad can't do anything wrong. And, and it's such a humbling experience. Yeah. They are, I mean, hands down. Uh, I was just having uh, a meeting this morning. We were just talking about kids, like what a blessing it is to have that mirror in front of you all the time of how you operate. There's so many things that they do exactly the way you do. And when you just get annoyed or frustrated or anything, you're like, oh. Yes. Oh, got it. (laughs) That's me, little one. (laughs) There you go. That's it. Um, I'd love to switch gears because you have a really interesting background in all of this. And when we spoke before, uh, you were obviously raised in India, came here, um, had the, the whole, you know, mom getting sick, passing away, et cetera. And, and you had that experience while being here in the States. And I would love for you just to share some of the differences maybe that you've seen between how the Eastern culture deals with the grief and passing on of the soul and and how the West does? That's a great question. So when I moved here and had to experience my mother's loss in the Western context, first of all, I didn't have too many friends to share it with because I was new here. And I also did, there was no context for my mother. Nobody knew my mother here. So if I said, you know, I'm, I feel like I really miss her and, you know, this, this thought that I will never talk to her is just driving me crazy. All that people could say was, I'm so sorry and move on because they didn't know. They had no context for who she was. Mm. Back in India, I find that grief is more of a community experience mm. than a private individual experience. So when someone dies there is a 13-day mourning period, you know, something like sitting Shiva, Yeah, the Jews do. We have rituals every single day for 13 days and um, family and friends and your workplace and everybody is on board with that. They understand that and that period to be a sacred period. And beyond that, for a whole year, we don't celebrate any festivals. There are no weddings arranged. There are no... um, no celebrations, no honoring anything because 12 months is supposed to be the mourning period mm-hmm. where every month we perform certain rituals for the one who passed away. When I was a little girl, I would hear adults talk about soul and reincarnation all the time around me. I didn't understand what they meant, but these conversations were had in the open and uh, you know they would laugh about it. They would talk about it. There was sort of a levity around the theme of death and dying. Yeah, It wasn't so serious. My grandparents died at home. We saw the bodies being washed. Mm. When I was a little kid, I've seen that happen. Um, I think in the West, because of the fact that, you know, people die in nursing homes and hospitals, at least in the modern context, and then the body is prepared and arrives for viewing, there is sort of that disconnect. Mm. 
there is that disconnect between the moment of death and saying goodbye. Um, also, grief is supposed to be over by next Thursday and you get back to work, you know, yep. uh, which is not the way it is done in the West, uh, in the East, sorry. Um, like I told you, though, there's elongated periods of rituals and mourning and um, there is a context in which to mourn the departed. Uh, you can talk about it. You have permission. And I feel that in the West, there is no permission. So it's the system. I don't want to say it's anybody's fault. Yeah. The way the system is set up, people don't have permission to grieve. They're expected to be back at work. And because of the discomfort and the lack of tolerance around these conversations, people have to retreat inward. They have to hold it in. A phrase I hear all the time is, I have to hold it together. <laughs> I cannot break down. I cannot show my true emotions, even though my father died two weeks ago, because at work, nobody understands. Nobody wants to talk about it. Mm. And so I find that those are the, the most significant differences that I see. Um, also in the East, there is talk about the soul leaves the body. So the body is just a shell. And so there is this feeling and sense that you have an ongoing connection with the departed ones. It's not the end of the love. It's just a temporary disruption and you are going to reconnect with them. And then you also reconnect with them through rituals. Yeah. It's a way of honoring their spirit, their legacy, their lives. But here when it's a dead halt, somebody dies and then next week you go to work, you're not expected to talk about it. The only place where you can really process some of this is in a therapist's office or with a coach. That's a very sanitized way to do grief. Yeah. Yeah. True. The, I'm curious if in the East, even before death, if feelings are more talked about and, and welcomed in general, because in the, you know, I grew up in Israel. I left when I was about seven or eight and I came here. But even there, you know, there's this very, Israel's very um, like a masculine, aggressive culture. Mm -hmm. And so you needed to be a tough guy. You needed to grow up. You needed to be a man, you know, all that kind of stuff, which definitely is here too. I mean, you know, I, my son plays soccer and if someone gets hurt, the dad will come in like, stop crying, you know? And it's like all of these things that, especially for men, I think women, it's a little bit different, but especially for men, we're told from a very, very young age that it's not okay to feel certain things. And so then we grow up and then we wonder why we can't cry or have any sympathy or empathy or compassion because the entire time we've just been programmed like a robot. You, that's not part of being a man. And I'm wondering if in the East, that's a different experience altogether, not when just having to deal with grief or, or death. Yeah, I would say yes and no. So there is, I think men all over the world receive this message that they have to be tough. They're the protectors mm. and they have to step into that role. So I think there is some aspect of that in the East as well. That being said, yes, I have found that people are much more free to express their emotions. People cry more easily. Uh, in the south, southern India, where I come from, actually people are known to be dramatic, highly emotional. Emotions run very high. So mm. it's not uncommon to find women crying and, you know, it's, it's accepted. People aren't going to shush you and say you should hold it in together because, because India especially is a 
is a country that is built on community and family. So you're never expected to do something all by yourself. Even today, I have trouble, you know, um, understanding or trying to embrace this notion that I have to do things myself and it's not okay to ask for help because I grew up in a culture where it was perfectly normal to ask for help. Mm. I find it easy to ask for help. So it's actually hard for me to do the reverse, which is rely on myself for everything. And I think that is one of the root causes, Ilan, that people feel so isolated because when you impose that kind of pressure on yourself, you have to figure it all out. You have to get it all done. Oh my goodness. That is the shortest route to fear. I think. Big time. Yeah. I, I can speak for myself. Uh, you know, my brother and I run this business together. Uh, we started about seven plus years ago and about, it was about three and a half years into the business. And we had done a lot of personal development work before we ever started the business. So that was a background. But, um, you know, we felt like our business kept hitting this mark and it was just kind of like staying and hovering around this thing. And, you know, we, we're very consciously aware that everything flows through us. There isn't stuff that's just happening. So obviously we were kept looking inwards. And one of the things we realized, you know, being in Israel, uh, moving when we were both really young, we moved to a country where it was just the four of us. It was me, him, and our parents. And we did everything on our own. We had no one to ask for help from. Whereas in Israel, we had a community, we had et cetera. But even then, like, it wasn't like my grandparents were really able to help us. But here, especially, and so I grew up in a household where we just figured out how to do everything on our own. And so we're running this business, trying to help, you know, trying to make it grow, realizing that every, we are literally doing everything on our own right. and have an incapability to ask for help so much. So, and, and this is something that's still very, pre, very present for me to the point that we went out to dinner and this woman at the end of dinner offered to help me. I couldn't even hear the offer. Oh my goodness. Because that ability to receive support, it basically goes through this filter of why would you help me? Like, like that's that, like, why would, you know, why would you take your time out to help me? Yeah. Yeah. That she was saying it and her, my wife is sitting right next to me and she's saying this and I'm like blank, just not responding. So my wife starts laughing. She starts laughing. And then I kind of realize I'm like that last person on the stage, you know, the, the little one doesn't get it type of yeah. thing. Uh. And then, so the next day I'm meditating in the morning and I kind of, you know, relive that moment. I'm like, wow, I just, that protector just comes online. It's like, I can't even receive support when it's provided. So it's not even just that, it's all of that and all these programs that, that, um, I mean, luckily I'm excited that I get to look at and discover and, and realize all that, but how many people are just at, so at the effect of it without having any clue that this right. is running their life? Exactly. I was in Starbucks and I just paid for someone who was standing in line behind me a couple of months ago. And when she got her coffee, she turns to me and says, why would you do that? It just took me aback. I'm like, I would have said, that was so nice of you. Thank you. <laughs> Instead, I got, why would you do that? And I said, I'm sorry, no ulterior motive. I just wanted to buy you a cup of coffee. That was it. Mm. And then I saw she visibly relaxed and she said, Oh my goodness, that's a really nice thing to be doing. I think I should do that for somebody else too. Yeah. But the, instinctively, there is this, this thing of, what do you need from me that you're doing something for me? Yeah, that is very inherently, I will say, in American culture. Israel is different 
Israel is like, it's even more sinister. And I think it's kind of like the, the way of the land there. But it's like, how are you trying to screw me? Uh, yeah. It's not like, what's the ulterior motive? It's like, we already know that you're somehow trying to screw me. Now we're trying to figure out like, what did you just do? And how are you trying to screw me? Like, how is this going to end up screwing me? And it's so weird. I, I didn't realize till I got older about all these cultural conversations that are just embedded, embedded, embedded in you. And then you're doing things out in the world and going, where's that even come from? Yeah. <laughs> so true. Yeah. All right, Uma, I love everything. Uh, love all of this. I think there's so much beautiful value in this. And, and I hope that for people who are listening, you can start to hear grief not as in something to avoid or run away from, uh, rather an opportunity for growth and healing. Because on the other side of this, who you get to be for others uh, is just so magical and so beautiful. So Uma, um, for people that want to take this conversation further with you, where would they find you? Uh, The best place to find me is my website, umagirish.com. I'm also on Facebook. I have a business page and I have a Facebook group for grieving women, which is called Transform Pain into Purpose. Mm, I like that name. Uh, We'll have all the links for you guys, as always, on the podcast page. So make sure you go there and check that out. And until we see you next week, if you guys have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please feel free to email me at Elon, I-L-A-N, at satoriprime.com. So we meet again. Have an amazing day and week. And Uma, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Hey, hey, before you go, I just wanted to remind you to go lock in your $9 per month for life offer to join our collective. Like I said, you can even try it for free for the next 14 days. I promise if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love what we're sharing inside of the collective. Again, just head to satoriprime.com forward slash collective and you can lock that price in. These are the same tools that we share with our personal one-on-one clients and those guys pay us tens of thousands of dollars to work with us. You can have them for just $9 a month. Again, satoriprime.com forward slash the collective. And as always, we'd love to hear your honest reviews of our show. So if you head to iTunes and leave us a review right now, you could actually be next week's lucky winner. And lastly, if you do want to connect with Guy and I, Head to Facebook right now. Join our personal development without the fluff private group. Ask for permission. There's a ton of amazing exclusive content there as well. And you get to communicate and interact with Guy and I on an ongoing basis. So as always, thank you for your trust, your loyalty, and your listening. We do not take it for granted. We really, really appreciate it. We love you and we'll see you next time.